This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we can take this time to focus upon your word, to be reminded of the teaching of our Lord as it applies to us, to have our focus back on the ultimate realities that uh, should shape our lives, shape our thinking related to our Christian life, our relationship to you, and how we are serving you on a day-to-day basis in this life. Now, Father, we pray that as we focus today that our attention will be upon you, that we will have the mental discipline to stay focused upon the message and upon your word and not be distracted by uh, thoughts related to uh, the distractions of our day-to-day life or the things that are coming up or things that are have taken place in the last week, but that our focus will be upon you and your word, that we might be edified and grow spiritually under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. One of the most important principles that we can come to understand from the Scriptures that impacts almost everything else is the law of volitional responsibility which comes out of the first divine institution. And remember, the divine institutions are those uh, sort of spiritual laws or moral or ethical laws, we might say, that God created with creation, with the creation of man as a social being that are embedded within reality. They are not something that man developed as a convention uh, in order to help him face certain issues or details or problems in life. But these were, were realities, absolute principles that are built into the very structure of the makeup of human beings. The first three were there before the fall. The second, the next two, four and five, came after the flood. The first three were designed to help man in perfection, in the perfect state of the Garden of Eden, uh, survive in terms of being able to uh, produce what God had given them responsibility for, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, to exercise dominion over over all of God's creation. That first divine institution was related to individual responsibility, individual responsibility, and it was depicted first and foremost by 
the fruit, the, the issue of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave man everything they could possibly need uh, in the Garden of Eden for sustenance. Everything was there for their, for their potential, for their development, for their sustenance. But God said there was one thing they could not do. There was only one way to sin in the garden, and that one way to sin in the garden was to disobey God and eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thus, they were placed from the very beginning with the importance of choice, individual responsibility. The choices we make determine the kind of people we are going to be. The choices we make determine the quality of life that we experience on this earth. Of course, the first and foremost choice that we make is our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. That's the most important decision anybody can ever make is their faith in Christ. That determines their eternal destiny. It is that faith in Christ that moves us from being spiritually dead uh, individuals, spiritually dead human beings, to being spiritual, spiritually alive and capable of having a relationship uh, with God and developing that relationship with God. But after we make that decision to trust in Christ as our Savior, we have a second decision to make, and this is a decision we have to make daily. We make many times each day, and that is a decision as to whether or not we are going to walk by the Spirit, live our life on the basis of God's provision of the indwelling and filling Holy Spirit, or whether we are going to walk on the basis or live our lives on the basis of the, of the sin nature. And these are the two most important issues that Scripture presents. Now, we come to a passage today in Matthew seven thirteen to 21, which addresses the question, which path? There are two parts to this section we're looking at today. The first part is the issue of, a ch- of the choice between, the wi- between one gate and another gate, between the wide gate, uh, which leads to the broad way, and the narrow gate, which leads to a difficult path. Then we will sh- go into the next paragraph, verses 15 through 20, which gives the warning to beware of false prophets. Now, here's the connection between the two. The false prophets that Jesus is focusing on here are clearly the the scribes and the Pharisees. That is who he's contrasting throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the righteous kind of living that is promoted by the scribes and Pharisees versus the kind of experiential righteousness God expects of those who are obedient to him, and this is the issue. The, obe- the, the the righteousness that God expects is the kind of righteousness that characterizes the narrow way. The kind of righteousness that the Pharisees promote is a kind of righteousness that characterizes the broad way. If we just turn back to chapter 5, I want to focus our attention on the introduction to the main section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The main section of the Sermon on the Mount actually goes from Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 17 through 20, give that focused orientation to this contrast between the two types of righteousness, and then the body continues down through where we ended last time in 7.12. Now we're at the conclusion, 7.13, and to the end of the chapter focuses on the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. In 
Matthew 5, 19 and 20, Jesus contrasts two different kinds of people. In verse 19, he says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so. This is the uh, represents the Pharisees. They are uh, teaching people by their false righteousness how to li- live in disobedience, actually in disobedience uh, to the law. And what Jesus says is that those who teach you to break the commandments are... Uh, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice they're still in the kingdom of heaven. The uh, reason I'm going back to this is to emphasize that Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to believers about the uh, about the kind of righteousness that should ca- characterize their life. He's not talking about how to get righteousness in terms of salvation. The Sermon on the Mount is not about how to get saved. It's about how saved people, justified people, are supposed to live. The contrast is between those who teach uh, to break the least of the commandments with those who uh, teach to the obedience to the commandments, the right kind of righteousness, and they shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 says, Jesus concludes the introduction saying, For I say to you that unless your righteousness, that is, unless your experiential righteousness exceeds that, that is, the experiential righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that phrase, enter the kingdom of heaven, we looked at several times and saw that it has basically three meanings in Scripture. One meaning is to gain salvation, justification, phase one. This is how it's used when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. A second way in which it is used, and it's used this way in Matthew, has to do with experiencing all of the present-time fullness of the spiritual life, uh, entering into the, the, the richness of life that will characterize the future kingdom citizen. And then the third way is the way that is related to entering into the, that, that spiritual, that spiritual life. In Acts chapter 14, when Paul is, is teaching in, uh, I believe it's in Lystra, he said he he returns back through Lystra, Iconium, and Derby on his uh, first missionary journey, and there the scripture says he was teaching them. Now he's teaching those who are already believers the principles on entering the kingdom of heaven. Now they've already entered in terms of that first meaning to get justified. So there it's a clear indication that that phrase "enter the kingdom" has this additional meaning of entering into the fullness of the spiritual life, which results in the second meaning, which is experiencing the the, the present-time blessings as opposed to uh, entering into it in terms of the eventual future uh, future rewards. So what Jesus comes back to at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount is a reminder that there are these two options. And every day we are faced with these options. Which path are we going to take? Are we going to take the path to life? Or are we going to take the path to death? Now, this isn't talking about life in terms of uh, eternal life that is being saved from the penalty of sin. This is talking about the fullness and richness of life in terms of being saved from the uh, power of sin in the 
present life. So there's two paths, two options that are described here. Matthew 7.13 states them, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, Jesus is taking a very something that is very common in the experience of his listeners, and that he is he's using an illustration from the gate. And in the background for this particular picture, there is a gate that is in, actually in the basement of the Alexander Nevsky uh, Russian Orthodox Church that is about 50 yards to the east of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is where it is on the site where it is believed that Jesus was crucified. For many years, there was a lot of debate as to whether or not the church, and there still is to some degree, whether or not the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is on the actual site of Golgotha. And part of the reason there was this debate was that it was thought that that was inside the walls, and according to the scripture, Jesus was crucified outside the walls. Golgotha as a place of execution would have been outside of the walls. But the wall that they identified as the uh, western wall at that particular time was further west of the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then about 20 or 30 years ago, as they were doing some remodeling and some uh, excavation under the church, this uh, Alexander Nevsky church, they discovered a wall and this particular gate that showed that this was the gate, the wall at the time of uh, at the time of Christ, that the wall further to the west was the one that was built actually approximately seven years after the death of Christ. Now, what's significant about this is you see the broad gate here on the left, and there's a small hole here on the right, and that is the narrow gate. And at night, they would close the broad gate. You wouldn't have caravans coming in. You wouldn't have your, your shopkeepers and others bringing goods in through the, through the gate uh, at nighttime. And so they would shut that for safety, and people would just go through this extremely narrow gate. So this gives you a, a bit of a historical background as to how they would uh, experience this understanding of a broad gate and a narrow gate. As we look at this verse, it is a reminder that what Jesus is essentially saying in this illustration is that God has one way. Now, we know that that, uh, that is an expression of the exclusivity that is taught in Scripture. And the Scripture certainly teaches that there is only one way to heaven. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is one of the things about biblical Christianity that really irritates and angers those who are not Christians is because in the unsaved world, there is the hope that there are many ways to God, many paths to God, and we all basically worship the same God, and we all basically worship and believe the same thing. We just call God by different names, and our way of getting there is different, but all roads eventually lead to God. 
What Scripture teaches is the opposite of that. Actually, that shows a lot of disrespect as well as ignorance of Christianity because Scripture teaches a way of exclusivity, that there is only one way to God. And this has been clear in the Scriptures from the very beginning of the Old Testament. When we think about um, when we think about the Old Testament, we see from the very beginning of Adam's fall, after Adam's fall, there was only one way for believers to come to God and to uh, have a relationship with God, and that was on the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice. Immediately after Adam's sin, uh, after God outlined the consequences of sin, he then clothed them because they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed and they had attempted to solve their problem on their own by sewing together fig leaves. God resolved that problem through more permanent clothing and he gave them uh, clothes made from the skins of animals. Now, in order to get clothes from the skins of animals, you have to kill the animals. So I believe there's a lot that's not overtly stated in that passage but has to have taken place. God would have had to show them how to properly kill an animal. Uh, that would have been a sacrifice. He would have also had to show them how to skin the animal, how to properly uh, treat and prepare the hide so that it would be soft and supple and they could work with it in making clothes. He would have had to teach them how to sew in order to make the clothes. All of this would have taken place at that particular time. And I believe because chapter 4 assumes that Cain and Abel already have been instructed in, on the importance of bringing sacrifice and offering to God, that this had to have taken place as well before the beginning of chapter chapter 4, verse 1. And so God would have taught them the, the, the foundation for sacrifice at that time. And this is reinforced by the statement in Hebrews chapter uh, 11, where it says that uh, Abel brought a better sacrifice. He knew it was a better or superior sacrifice because God had instructed him. So at the, from the very beginning, there was only one way to God. God defines how we come into his presence. That was through sub substitutionary sacrifice. Then a few chapters later, we see that there was only one way to survive the flood. One way to survive the flood was to be on the ark with Noah. There was only one way to survive the flood. Those who didn't believe Noah's message, which was everybody on the planet except for Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, a total of eight people, there was no other way to survive the worldwide destruction of the flood. There's only one way of salvation. There was only one way into the ark, only one door on the ark. This typifies only one way to salvation, only one way to be delivered. Uh, fourth, we see that when we come to the time of the Exodus, there was only one way to survive the tenth plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn, and that was that a lamb had to be, that was without spot or blemish, a qualified lamb, had to be sacrificed, and the blood applied to the doorposts of the house for God to pass over that house and not take the life of the first firstborn. When they went in when they left Egypt, there was only one way to escape from the Egyptian army, and that was the path that God uh, laid out for them by parting the waters in the Red Sea. 
when they came to Mount Sinai, they were given instructions on building the tabernacle, and there was only one way to God in the tabernacle. There weren't multiple entry points in the tabernacle. There was only one way. And then last or seventh, there was only one kind of lamb, and that was a lamb that was without spot or blemish. Now, all of these are examples or types from the Old Testament which foreshadow and teach something about the salvation work of Christ, that there's only one way to God in terms of justification, that is being saved from the penalty of sin. As Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. But the Old Testament also speaks that there is, for the believer, only one way to life, to really experience the fullness of life that God has for the believer after justification uh, by faith. And that is to follow the Torah, to follow the law. Torah means instruction. And God gave instruction to Israel, viewing them as a redeemed people because they had all trusted in him in terms of the uh, uh, Passover meal, the Passover lamb, and uh, crossing the Red Sea, they're viewed as they're viewed as all being a redeemed nation, and the law was given to a redeemed people as to how a redeemed people was supposed to live. And again and again and again throughout the law, the people are exhorted to obey the law because that is the way to life, and we will see that in a couple of passages in just a minute. So in the Old Testament, for the believer, there was only one way to live, and that is the Torah. There was only one way to fight when the Israelites went into the land. God gave them specific instructions as to how they were to defeat the enemy at Jericho and how they were to defeat the enemy at Ai. At Ai, in Joshua chapter 4, they're told that they are not to take any spoil, they are not to take any money for themselves. They are to follow God's instructions uh, to the letter. At least that was the instruction at Jericho. And what happened at Jericho was that one man, Achan, uh, took some spoil and plunder, and he buried it under his tent so nobody else would know. But God knew. And so because of that, uh, when they went to the next battle at Ai, uh, they were defeated soundly by the inhabitants of Ai. And the reason was because there was sin in the camp, and they had to deal with the disobedience to God. God was not going to give them victory over the, their enemies unless they were doing it the one way that God said to do it. So there was only one way to fight so that the battle was clearly the Lord's. Uh, when they went through the wilderness, there was only one way to live and, and to gain food, and that was to eat the manna, the bread of life that God gave them in the wilderness. And they had to follow God's specific instructions. And that meant each morning they went out and they gathered up the manna that had miraculously uh, appeared overnight, and they were just to take enough for that day. If they took more than enough for that day, teaching the day-to-day -day dependence upon God, then it would it would spoil and it would grow rotten overnight and they would open up the bag with the manna in it the next day and it would be filled with maggots and worms. And so they, they were only to take enough for each day. So there was only one way to uh, survive in the wilderness and that was through the provision of God. And then there was only one tabernacle only, and later only one legitimate temple, only one way to worship God. So the principle of exclusivity 
runs through the Old Testament in two ways. That important decision on how to have eternal life, salvation from the penalty of sin, and there's also only one way on how the believer after salvation, after justification, is to live. Now, when we look at our passage in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, if we just take that out of context, we might think that this is talking about salvation, phase one. There's only one way to be justified. And there are many people who, when they are teaching the Sermon on the Mount, they believe that that's what this is talking about, that the Sermon on the Mount is really talking about having the right kind of righteousness for justification, imputed righteousness. And they will say that this is teaching that there is only one way to gain that righteousness, and that is by faith in Christ. And, of course, that is true. But is that what this passage is teaching in this context? And as I pointed out as we've gone through this study, Jesus is not teaching his already saved disciples on how to be justified. He is teaching his already saved disciples on the kind of righteousness that should be evident in Israel in order for the kingdom to come in. Because at that time and place in history, Jesus has come to appear to the uh, to, to, to Israel and to claim the message, proclaim the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They have to be ready spiritually for the kingdom. Just because they might be justified doesn't mean they are spiritually qualified for the kingdom to come in. And they weren't. And if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, after, uh, Moses has outlined the fact that Israel will obey and if they obey, they will be blessed in their life in the land. But if they disobey, God will remove them from the land. And then we've seen many times at the beginning of chapter 30, there's the promise that eventually they will repent. They will turn back to God after God has brought all these curses upon them. They will turn back to God and God will eventually return them from all the corners of the earth and return them to the land that God promised them through his, through his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and then God will restore them and then they will experience the, in, in, in their obedience to him, the riches of his blessing. After having said that in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 through 14, then Moses challenges them with the choice. Now he's addressing those who are already believers. And he says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. You have a volitional responsibility here. You can choose life or you can choose death. You can choose good or you can choose evil. He's not talking about justification. He's talking about how they are to live after justification because this was the problem with the nation Israel is that they disobeyed God in their spiritual life, and because of their failure in their spiritual life, they eventually were taken out of the land, and they were they were uh, brought into they were scattered throughout all of the nations. Now, I'm not saying that all the Jews throughout all of history were were saved. I'm not saying that they had two issues they always had to resolve. One was their standing before God, which was justification. But the second is how they were to live as justified people. Now, in subsequent generations, they failed on both parts. But it wasn't just enough to be justified in order to experience the blessing of God. They had to live 
uh, righteousness according to the Mosaic law. They had to live in obedience or God would remove them from the land. That's what Moses is talking about. And he said, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. Now, he's not talking to unbelievers here on how to get justified because justification was never by works. It was always by faith. So he's clearly, by what he is saying, talking to them as believers that this is how you are to live. And you are to keep the law that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. So he is saying the key to life Now, he's not talking about eternal life as opposed to condemnation in the lake of fire. He's talking about the present experience of the riches of life here. Uh, In order to have life, you have to obey the law. But in contrast, verse 17, if your heart turns away, let's look at it here, if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, what will happen? Verse 18, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. I want you to look at that term perish. The contrast here is between life and perishing. Now, we often think of that word perish as a, as a term that relates to, uh, relates to eternal condemnation. We'll look at the Greek word in a little bit, but in the New Testament, it's used to refer to not only uh, destruction in this life, but also eternal condemnation. And we'll look at how that relates to the passage because it's used in, um, in Matthew 7, uh, uh, 13. The broad way leads to destruction. And then Moses said to the Israelites, he said, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. This is the same message that Jesus is giving in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he's focusing on here is that to those who are saved, you need to choose the path of life to grow to spiritual maturity and not just be satisfied with the fact that your eternal destiny is going to be heaven instead of the lake of fire, but you need to grow to spiritual maturity. You need to choose the path of life and not the path of death. This choice between one path or another path is seen all through the passages in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 119.30, the psalmist says, I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinance before me. So this is not talking about salvation. This is talking about the believer after salvation choosing the faithful way, choosing the way of righteousness, the way of the law, in order to live a life that will, where they will experience the riches of God's blessing. Other passages such as uh, Proverbs 2.20 and Proverbs 3.6, one that we often quote, in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. This uses that same word. The word for paths is the Hebrew word derek, which is the same word that's translated way. And so we have this, this ongoing choice between these two paths. This is clearly seen in Proverbs 12.26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked, the path of the wicked, 
leads them astray. Now, this is addressing believers. They need to choose who their friends are going to be because one can influence you in a wrong direction. The other can influence you in the right direction. In Proverbs 12:28, we read, In the path or in the way of righteousness is life, and its pathway there is no death. Again, the believer makes this choice after salvation to choose the path of life or the path of death. One of my favorite passages that's stated verbatim twice in the in Proverbs, there's only two or three verses that are stated twice in Proverbs for emphasis. In Proverbs 14:12 is stated again in Psalm and uh, excuse me, I put Psalm that should be Proverbs 16:25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is not talking about justification. This is talking about your way of life. Are you going to live the Christian way of life and make doctrine the priority in your life and the study of God's Word the priority of your life and the application of it the priority of your life? Are you going to choose the path of death? This is seen again in a passage in Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. That's the paths of the Torah where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. That's the rebellious generation of Jeremiah's day and their their decision to reject the, the Torah. Now, as we look at our passage in Matthew 7.13, Jesus commands us to enter by the narrow gate. And he explains why we're to enter by that narrow gate, He says, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Now, this isn't just a one-shot decision. This is an ongoing, continuous decision we have to make every day. The uh, broad way leads to destruction. Now, many people think that because it uses this word, we have the noun at the top, apaleia, which is used in this passage, that this is a word indicating eternal condemnation. The verb that is used is the second word that's on the screen, apolumi, which also has the same idea. It means to destroy, to ruin, or to to lose something. Now, it's interesting to do a word study of these two words. The noun, the top word, is used 18 times in the New Testament. It is used six times with reference to eternal condemnation. At least these passages clearly state that. John 17:12, Philippians 1:28, 2 Thessalonians 2:3, 2 Peter 3:7 and Revelation 17:8 and 11. John 17:12, Philippians 1:28, 2 Thessalonians 2:3, 2, 2 Peter 3:7 and Revelation 17:8 and 11. There clearly refers to eternal condemnation. The Second Thessalonians 2.3 passage talks about the Antichrist as the son of perdition. And in Revelation 17.8 and 11, it talks about the Antichrist and the false prophet going to perdition. Seven times that word is used of temporal ruin or possibly physical death. Passages like Philippians 3.19, 1 Timothy 6.9, Hebrews 10.39, 2 Peter 2.1 and 2.3, and 2 Peter 3.16. These all talk about a person who may have something that is ruined 
uh, right now in time, or he ruins his life by his bad decisions. Maybe a believer who makes bad decisions and thus ruins his life. Three times the word is used of something that is physically destroyed. Uh, Matthew 26, 8 is the only other time in Matthew this word is used other than Matthew 7, uh, uh, 7.13, and there it refers to just physical waste, something that is physically destroyed. It's also used that way in Mark 14.4 and Acts 8.20. Uh, it's used, and then we have the passage in Matthew 7.13. So many of the passages do not where the noun is used in the New Testament do not refer necessarily to eternal condemnation. The verb is used a a number of times, 84 times in the New Testament. It's used two previous times in the Sermon on the Mount when it talks about plucking out your eye and destroying it or cutting off your hand and destroying it, clearly not talking about eternal condemnation. Uh, So the context doesn't use the word which uses the word, doesn't use it for eternal condemnation. It's only used three times as describing eternal condemnation, and that's all in the Gospel of John. In John 3.16, God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. See, there's our verb, should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's also used for eternal condemnation in John 10.28, and in John 17:12 but the the other times that it's used in the gospels it's all talking about temporal destruction so it while it can mean to suffer eternal condemnation uh and it's never used that way in the gospel of Matthew and it is only used that way three times in the gospel of John most of the time it refers to either uh, physical destruction, uh, physical death. In, in Matthew, uh, Peter was uh, concerned uh, perishing by drowning in Matthew 8.25. Herod wanted to destroy Jesus, talking about his physical death in Matthew, uh, killing the infant Jesus in Matthew 2.13. And the Pharisees wanted to destroy Jesus in Matthew 12.14. So there, in all of these passages in the New Testament, the word simply means physical destruction. So Jesus, the word destruction there doesn't mean eternal condemnation, and there's no support for that meaning in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is simply saying that if you choose the way that's, that's easy, if you choose the path in life that's easy, then it leads to destruction, Similar to the passage in Proverbs, the way, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof leads to death. In contrast, in verse 14, Jesus says, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. Now some people might think that this is eternal life, but the way to get eternal life isn't difficult, is it? You don't have to work for it. You don't have to put forth any effort. Jesus did all of the work. The path to eternal life, that is uh, being saved from the penalty of sin, is an easy path. It's simply putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But the path of obedience, the Christian life that comes after salvation, is a challenge. It's a challenge each and every day to make that choice between life and death. Do we really want to have the fullness, the richness of life that Jesus promised? Remember, Jesus said, I came not like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. 
So if we want to have that rich, full, abundant life that Jesus came to offer, we have to choose the narrow gate and the narrow way, which is difficult. And Jesus then concludes by saying there are few who find it. Now, as we wrap up, I want to just look briefly at this next section. It's pretty easy to understand. It's fairly self-explanatory because Jesus gives a common uh, illustration. He says, and this is the command, beware of false prophets. It's the command, meaning to pay attention, to wake up, to be alert for danger. It's present active imperative, indicating continuous action again in the Christian life. Uh, So he says, uh, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They are a sheep is the term sheep is often used to describe God's people. Uh, it is used that way in passages such as Psalm 95, 6, and 7. Just look at verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. This illustration of shepherds and sheep is further developed in Jeremiah 23, verse 1, where God is condemning the leaders of Israel as false prophets, a important passage as a background to Matthew 7, 15 to 20. And Jeremiah 23, 1, God says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Now, in the context of verse 15, Jesus is warning that there are false prophets. And by this, he is, he is applying this to the, to the Pharisees. They are the false prophets. They are the ones who are teaching a false view of experiential righteousness based on a superficial view of the law. Uh, Jesus continually challenges the people with regard to the, uh, the, the wrong teaching of the Pharisees. Twice he warns of the leaven of the Pharisees. In chapter 23, he has a confrontation with the Pharisees, and he pronounces eight woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Seven times in Matthew he calls them hypocrites. Twice he calls them blind guides. He calls them fools. He calls them whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombstones. He calls them serpents, and he calls them a brood of vipers. Jesus was not very kind. He was not politically correct. He was not sensitive to the feelings of the Pharisees. He was focused on truth and exposing their error. And so there's this same kind of warning in the Old Testament. I'll just show you a couple of verses from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23:16. the Lord of hosts says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. See, that's the end result. The passage we're looking at talks about the fruits of the false prophets. In verse 16, we read, You will know them by their fruits. And Jeremiah says the fruits of the words of the prophets will lead to make will make you worthless. See, many people interpret verses 16 through 20 as the quality of life or the characteristics of a person's life. They will interpret these verses in this way. They will say, you will know them by their fruits. You look at a person's life and you can tell whether or not they're a Christian. Now, many of us have made that mistake at one point or another in our life, and we've looked at somebody and we've said, how in the world can that person be a Christian? Uh, I can think of uh, at least one president of the United States 
that many people would would uh, be aghast at if they knew his testimony. But he's clearly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He uh, went to a Baptist church that was very well known in the state from which he he came, and the pastor of that church was a sound doctrinal Baptist pastor, and he he testified several times to uh, people I knew that Bill Clinton was definitely a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might look at uh, President Clinton's life and say, he can't be a believer. Yes, he is, and he's going to go to heaven because salvation is not dependent at all on what kind of works we do. It's based on our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so the, but in contrast here, what, uh, the Lord is condemning is the words of the prophet, not their lifestyle. It's the words of the prophets. And verse, uh, 26 of Jeremiah 23, God says, how long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? See, the focus is on the content of what they are saying, not the quality of their life. Jeremiah 22:32. Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams and tell them and cause my people to err by their lives and by their recklessness. The fruit of the false prophet is destruction in the life of the people. They go take, take the broad way instead of the narrow way. So in Matthew 7:16 through 20, Jesus uses the agricultural uh, illustration that a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. But the fruit that he's talking about is what they say, not what they do. And he talks about that there will be divine judgment on them in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, remember, he's talking under the... the uh, in the dispensation or in the age of Israel when they're under the Mosaic law? And what was the penalty for being a false prophet? It was death. So being thrown into the fire here is not talking about eternal, the eternal lake of fire. It's simply a metaphor for destruction and that they will be, they will be destroyed. And then Jesus concludes in Matthew 7.20, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now, there were two tests of, of, of the quality of a, or the truthfulness of a prophet in, given in Deuteronomy. The first test is given in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. And there it recognizes that there will be prophets and dreamers and people who see visions and miracle workers who rise up, and they will perform these miracles. They will have these signs and wonders. And, Jesus, and, and Moses says, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. It, it really takes place. And then they give a message, and the message is, let's go after other gods, which you have not known. Sir, let's serve other gods. So their message is a false message, even though they had miracles and signs and wonders. And Moses says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord of your God is testing you. See, the test is, are you going to follow the miracle worker who's teaching the wrong thing, are you going to follow the person who just teaches the word but teaches the truth? He's not flashy. He's not putting on a dog and pony show. He's just teaching the Bible verse by verse. And so Moses says, don't listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of the dreams. Your Lord is testing you to see if you really love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. 
In verse 4, he goes on to say, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Judgment shall come to the false prophet. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew uh, 7, uh, 7.19, that they should be cut down and thrown into the fire. The second test is given in Deuteronomy 18.20. And this is, this is the test of uh, that the, whatever the prophet says comes to pass. The way you would know that he has really spoken by God, verse 21, is given in verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if that thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So uh, what is the penalty? The end of verse 20, that prophet shall die. The false prophet shall die. And so the challenge before each of us, From this passage, the doctrine is that every day you and I have to decide, are we going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to take the difficult way and pursue biblical truth? Are we going to make the Bible, the Bible, the study of the Bible, and the application of doctrine the number one priority in our life? Or are we going to pursue life on our own terms and end up on the path to destruction with our heads bowed? and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be challenged in terms of our volition. Which path are we on? Which path are we taking? Each waking moment, we have this decision before us. Are we going to walk by the Spirit, or are we going to walk according to the sin nature? Are we going to walk in the light, or are we going to walk in darkness? That is the challenge for each believer. But if you are not a believer, if you're not sure of your salvation or if you're not sure of your eternal destiny, this is not the issue for you. The issue for you is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for your sins that you might have eternal life. The path of salvation, salvation from the penalty of sin, is simple. It's easy. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you for it is easy. It is light. It is simple. It is simply to trust in him, and he will give you eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have studied this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.